I don't know about you, but watching that video of those children receiving those boxes was just marvelous. And I was fighting back tears over there as I watched that uh, video and the joy that was on the faces of all those kids as they received those boxes and the gifts that were inside and the testimony of that one as she talked about how her friend took her to church and she came to know Jesus and now her mom and her grandma and other people are. That's really awesome, isn't it? So let's be praying for that project as the gospel goes out through those shoe boxes, literally around the world. Uh, before we get started, um, I just want to say something about um, our study in 1 John. Um, for those of you that would like to take notes, I know Michael probably has mentioned this already, but there are these journals back there on the bookshelf, and I would encourage you to pick one of these up and use it to take notes as we're studying 1 John. Uh, we use these up at the congregation that I'm from, West Hills Community Church, and the interesting thing about the journal is that on one page you've got the text of Scripture, and then on the other page you've got a place to take notes. And one of the ways that we make the most out of sermons that are preached is by taking the time to take notes and write down key ideas and stuff like that. So uh, feel free to pick one of those up. As I said, they're back there on your book shelves, and I think if you or a note taker, you already know the benefit of that. Uh, so with that, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. I'm going to be praying for a messianic congregation that's located in Akko in Israel. And if you guys were here when I told the story about a Jewish guy who came to know Christ by making con a connection between Zechariah's prophecy about Messiah entering Jerusalem riding on a donkey and how that prophecy is written about in Matthew and how when he saw that statement in Matthew, he knew that Jesus was Messiah and he believed. If you were here when I told that story in a sermon, this is the guy I'm praying for. His name's Guy. He and his wife, Tina, have planted a church, a Messianic church in Akko, in northern Israel, and I just got an email from her regarding how people here can help, and she basically said, I can't really tell you a specific project to give toward, but just know this, we've given a lot of medical kits out, and we here in northern Israel are preparing for war, and so they're far away from Gaza, but the situation there is really, really getting well, it was serious initially, and it's becoming more and more serious by the day, as you might know. And so I'm going to be praying for Guy and his wife, Tina, and for their congregation and for the Messianic Jewish people there in Israel, that they will have a strong witness with their people. So join with me. Let's pray, and let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we have the privilege of gathering together here, and as one expression of the body of Christ, we can come together freely, lifting up praises to you, hearing a message from your word, fellowshipping to, toward each other, using our gifts to bless one another, and we do so with freedom, not having to fear that authorities will come and knock down our door or that bombs will fall in our parking lot or through the roof of our building. 
you've blessed us to worship you in a state of safety, and you've blessed us to worship you in a country where there is peace. We pray that you would help us to make every, the most of every opportunity to do that, never forgetting that this is a special blessing from you. But we also pray, Father, that you would help us remember those who are not so fortunate. And I want to pray particularly for Harvest of Asher and for Guy Cohen and for his wife, Tina, and for their congregation of Messianic Jews, Jewish people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and who find themselves in an area where their country is preparing for widespread war. I pray for them as they reach out and minister grace and minister love and minister the gospel of Christ to Christian Jews, to Christian Arabs, and to non-Christian Arabs and Jews too. And I pray that their labor of love would be blessed and that you would use it to turn many of your people, the Jews, to Christ. But I pray also that many Arabs would come to know Christ too. And we pray that you would protect them. We pray that your angels would be protecting Guy and Tina and their congregation. And we pray that you would be protecting all of those who follow you there in Israel. We pray for Arab Christians that are on the other side of the line, that you would protect them too. Our ultimate prayer is that you would bring peace to that region and that you would prevent there being a regional conflict or even a worldwide conflict as the world powers are in conversation and are rattling swords. We ask that that would not happen but that you would restore a semblance of peace there between the Israelis and the Arab countries around them. But Lord Jesus, we know that ultimately no true peace will come until you, the Prince of Peace, come back and take your seat on the old throne of David. And so in all of our prayers, we pray that you, Lord Jesus, would come quickly. And in the meantime, help us be watchful. Help us spread the good news. Help us support those that are suffering, like Guy and like Tina and like their little congregation there. And help us hold out the word of truth. For truly, you, Lord Jesus, are the hope of the world and the hope of every heart. Now, Father, we're going to turn our attention to um, your word, and then we're going to celebrate your table, Lord. And so we pray that you would speak to us and work and have your way with us as we hear your word. Give me grace to be able to speak it as you have put it on my heart. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when we read in Psalm 103 in the opening verses, We read these words, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then the next verse says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget or forget not all his benefits. And then the verses that follow those first two verses list some of the benefits that are for those who follow the Lord God, uh, benefits that the psalmist doesn't want to forget. And 
If I were to ask many of you to list some of the benefits that are yours as followers of Jesus Christ, you might say various things. Uh, some people might say, well, one of the benefits of being a Christian is that we have our sins forgiven. And that's really true. That is one of the benefits of being a Christian, isn't it? That our sins, not in part but the whole, have been nailed to the cross and we don't bear them anymore. That's totally true. And we know that it's true uh, from Scripture. In fact, when the angel came and announced that Mary was going to have a son and gave Joseph the name that the son was to bear, he said that he's going to be called Jesus for he's going to save his people from their sins. So, being saved from sin, forgiven of sin, that's a particular benefit. And that's particularly good news for anyone who is weighed down with many sins and is afflicted by a guilty conscience. Christ can solve that problem because that's why he came. Uh, another benefit that some of you might mention might be that as a Christian, you're going to go to heaven. And that's a good benefit. It's sure better than the alternative. Uh, none of us want to go to the other place. None of us want to perish. We don't want to go to hell. And we know from Scripture that that is indeed one of the benefits of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one example is found in Luke's gospel where Christ is crucified between two thieves. And at some point during the crucifixion, one of the thieves defends Christ and asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus looks at this thief dying on a cross because of his crimes, and he says, today you will be with me in where? Paradise. All of us want to live in paradise. This world is not paradise. Hollister's not paradise. Morgan Hill's not paradise. Nowhere in the world is paradise, but where Christ is, that's paradise. And so that's a benefit. Christians will go to heaven when they die. And that's a really good thing. We'd rather live in paradise than anywhere else. Who doesn't want to go there? And flowing from that benefit is another benefit. And that is that for Christians, the death of the body isn't final. The death of the body isn't final. Any of us who have lost loved ones know that when a loved one dies and the body is placed in the ground or it's cremated, that there seems from a human perspective to be a finality about that. But as Christians, we know that's not true. <clears throat> Death of the body is not final. It's not final at all. And Jesus gives us that promise in John 11, 25 and 26. He was attending a funeral one time and the sisters of the man that had died were grieving and Jesus basically said to them that he is the resurrection and the life. And he went on to say that he who believes in him, though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. And he's talking about the fact that death of the body is not final for those who are in a relationship with God, for those that are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And after he stated that promise to these sisters, he proved that he had the power to accomplish what he had promised by raising their brother from the dead. And he'd been dead four days. Four days. Not one, not two, not three. Four days. Decay had set in. Jesus reversed it all. Called them back to life. No doubt those three benefits of being a Christian are benefits indeed. They are benefits indeed. 
This is part of our heritage as followers of Jesus Christ. But there is one benefit that is greater than these, and really which these benefits flow from. And this particular benefit is spoken of by the Apostle Paul, and it's also spoken of by the Apostle Peter, and it's also spoken of by the Apostle John. So what is the benefit that I'm talking about? Well, if you read 1 Peter 3.18 or Romans 5.1 or 1 John 1.3, you see the benefit. And the benefit that I'm talking about is that those who trust Christ, those who believe Christ's message, those who have faith that Jesus is the Son of God, actually enter a relationship where they have fellowship, where they have communion with the living God and with Jesus Christ, his son. And that fellowship, that communion is as real as any kind of fellowship and communion you have with another human, although we fellowship with each other in the physical body and the fellowship, the communion that we have with the Father and with the Son, and as well with the apostles, is a spiritual communion. It's a spiritual fellowship right now. Someday it will be a fellowship of sight. But right now it's a fellowship in spirit. And so let me have you consider some of these verses, um, if you will. Um, see, here's the deal. Since the beginning... When sin entered into the world, since Adam committed the first sin and sin entered the human race, humans, you and me, people like us, are by nature separated from God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. We by nature are unholy. We by nature are unrighteous. We by nature are unjust. And so to be God's friend, we have to somehow come to be holy and come to be righteous and come to be just before the living God, and we can't. We don't have the ability to accomplish that for ourselves. In the same way that one speeding ticket makes you a speeder in the eyes of the law of California. One sin makes you a sinner in the eyes of a holy God, right? And so we don't have the power to make ourselves holy and righteous and just. Well, Jesus came to make it possible. And so let me give you some scriptures to look at. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter wrote about this idea that I'm talking about, real fellowship and communion with the Father and with the Son. So in the 18th verse of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter wrote these words, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And notice that middle phrase, so that he might bring us to God. We watched that video about, what's it called, it called again? Operation, I forgot the operation part. I was going to say Christmas child. 
No, Operation Christmas Child. And that little girl that gave that testimony, Moni talked about how a friend of hers wanted to bring her to Christ, and so she talked to her about going to church, and her friend brought this other girl to church, right? Same concept here, only it's much more profound. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And so there's a picture there. It's like Christ takes the believer by the hand and brings the believer to God, the Father. That's talking about reconciliation. We are reconciled as sinners to a holy God through Christ being offered the just for the unjust, right? And so there's a relationship there. Um, Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And you might not be familiar with that verse, and so if you're not... um, You might turn over there, but after Paul has talked about this doctrine that we know as justification by faith, where because of our faith, we are made just before God on the merit of Jesus, he says in the first verse, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, the peace Paul speaks of here is a certain type peace. It's the kind of peace that's brought to two warring factions, two warring enemies, where each side has laid their arms down and now they have a relationship of peace. There's a war going on in Israel. An illustration of what Paul's talking about between people and God could be that if there by the supernatural power of God came a point where Hezbollah in the north and the Palestinians in the south Um, Hamas and the Israelis were able to meet together and say, okay, look, we don't want to do war anymore. We're going to agree to lay our arms down and we're going to make peace with each other. And then they all give each other bro hugs, right? And they lay their arms down and suddenly there's peace in the Middle East. So warring enemies come into a relationship of peace with one another. That's the picture Paul is giving when he says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. When I lived in rebellion against God, God was my enemy, and I was his enemy, just like all of you, before you came to know Christ. You were God's enemy, he was your enemy, and every time I sinned, that was rebellion against God, and it just showed that I was at war with him. So what does God do? By the power of the Holy Spirit, he lets me come and hear the gospel Through the gospel, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, like many of you have, and when I put faith in Christ, I'm justified before God, and through my justification, I am now at peace with God. He's not my enemy, and I'm not his enemy. We have peace between ourselves, and so we can have a relationship. Does that make sense? So Paul is talking about the same concept. Now, let's go to our text for today. Look at 1 John 1 and verse 3. 1 John 1 and verse 3 says something similar in different words. So John writes in that third verse, what we have seen and heard, 
we proclaim to you also. He's talking about everything they saw and heard and touched and experienced with Jesus. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And John goes on to say in verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And as I said Sunday a week ago, nothing would have made the Apostle John happier than for those who were being tempted to break away from the fellowship to really fully invest in the fellowship that he and the other apostles had in the fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But the particular statement is talking about this whole idea uh, about having fellowship with them and also fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean, really, to have fellowship with the apostles? What does it mean? to have fellowship with God the Father. What does it mean to have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ? Let me unpack that for you. What all this means is that the great benefit people gain in which you already have, if you are a Christian, is that Christians have fellowship with, communion with God the Father and God the Son, And really, that's what Scripture is all about. Really, that is the greatest benefit. That we have a personal, real, living relationship with the living God. And so let me unpack it for you a little bit more. Scripture gives us the revelation of this. Scripture also reveals the foundation of this. And Scripture also tells us about participation in this communion. So Scripture is the revelation of this truth. I'm talking all of Scripture. And Scripture reveals the foundation of this truth. And Scripture tells us about participation in this truth, in this communion. And for those of you that are taking notes, I just finished my introduction. And those three things that I gave you, those three words, are going to be your outline. Revelation, foundation, participation. Revelation, foundation, participation. So, what do I mean about revelation? Well, first of all, Scripture reveals the great benefit of becoming a Christian and that it is entering fellowship with the living God. So let me give you an overview of what Scripture reveals. Starting in Genesis going through the end of the New Testament. And I promise you, we'll be out of here by 1130. (laughs) Now listen, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation account. And we learn that God created Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden, and they had harmony and fellowship with God. Genesis chapter 3 tells us a tragic story. Who knows what the tragic story is from Genesis chapter 3? Somebody said it, it's the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, the harmony and communion with God is interrupted because Adam sins against God. Eve ate the fruit, gave it to Adam. He listened to her. He sinned against God. He plunged the whole race into sin. So Genesis chapter 3 is the account of the fall. Now what the rest of the story from Genesis 3 onward shows 
is that after the fall, God got far, far away from humanity. Far, far away from humanity. Adam and Eve are put out of the garden. They're not having fellowship. The communion's been broken. And then from the fall and the banishment, all the way up into Genesis 12, God talks to individuals. And so we know from about Genesis 15 that there was a priest of the Most High God named Methuselah. We know about a guy named Enoch. He walked with God and he was no more because God raptured him. But generally, God interacted with individuals. Uh, but that was about it. There was not a lot of interaction with the human race. And ultimately, he destroyed the whole human race and started over from scratch with eight people. That's in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And then he comes and starts a relationship with Abraham, and then he forms this nation. And he forms this nation after having had fellowship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob, to a greater or lesser extent. And then he takes this nation out into the wilderness. And if you read the books of Exodus to Deuteronomy, then it tells the story of God moving from being far distant to moving close. And so in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God gives instruction to build the tabernacle. And after the tabernacle is built, God consecrates it. That means he comes down and fills it with his presence. And then he lives in the midst of a people, Israel, right? And then Israel's history moves on, and eventually they build a temple, and God's living in the temple. But the only way you access God is through the sacrificial system, and he dwells there in the temple. That's where he's centered. You might say that's where he's located, right? But he's still far away. And he still interacts with individuals. You read about that through the whole Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets had a relationship with him. But then after the last prophet, Malachi, there are 400 years of silence and God doesn't speak to anybody. And then what happens? A virgin, virgin conceives. She bears a son. She and Joseph call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And who was Jesus? God in the flesh. 100% God, 100% human, up close and personal now. You don't have to go to the temple and watch as the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies because God in flesh is walking around among people. And he's touching them, and he's speaking to them, and he's teaching them, and he's healing them, and he's raising them from the dead, and he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. And now God is up close and personal. He's living in the midst of a human community and letting them see what he's like in every way. So it moves from far off to being a little bit closer to being really close. And then Jesus, the Son of God, gets crucified, gets buried, Death can't hold him. Three days later, he rises from the dead. He appears to his disciples for 40 days. He goes back into heaven. And after he goes back into heaven, and the disciples, 120 of them, Acts chapter 2 tells us, or Acts chapter 1, 1 or 2, it's there. You can read it. Um, 120 of them, then God gets closer still. Because Jesus had promised that they were to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promise of his father, 
the Holy Spirit. And after they received the Holy Spirit, they would have power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And on the day of Pentecost, boom, the Holy Spirit comes. And so you see the progression. God's moved from intimate fellowship to being far away, to being closer in the temple and the tabernacle, to being closer still in the incarnate Son of God, to being so close that God lives inside every believer in the person of the Spirit. That's the revelation of Scripture that what God has been doing is working to restore communion between himself, the holy, righteous, just God, and unholy, unrighteous, unjust people so that he could fellowship with them and they could fellowship with him. That's the first point. That's the revelation of Scripture. That's the main story. And so if you're a Christian, you're created in Christ Jesus for that very thing. To be in intimate communion and fellowship with the Lord. So as Christians, as I've said several times, we have God the Spirit living in us and in the church for fellowship with God. And John chapter 1, verse 3 is referencing that very thing. So let me ask you an application question here. When you come to worship, when you come on a Sunday morning, are you aware that you gather in the presence of the living God? And the primary reason that you as an expression of the body of Christ gather is first of all, to worship the living God and to have communion with the living God and to hear from the living God and to have the living God mold you and shape you and convict you and change you and make you a little bit more like Jesus. Are you aware of that? Because fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, it's an individual deal and it's a corporate deal. That's why we call the church the body of Christ. You have a head, I have a head, you have a body, I have a body. How much fellowship is there between your head and your body? Lots. Lots. Christ is the head, the church is his body. How much fellowship should there be between the head and the body? Lots. That's what this gig is about. This is not a social club gathering. This is one expression of the people of God gathering together to fellowship with the living God, the Father and the Son in the Spirit, the triune God. And God makes it possible through the gospel that we have believed and through the Spirit that he's given to us, right? So when you come together, are you coming together first and foremost to be prepared for that? Do you come on Sunday morning to meet God? Listen, all of us come to meet other people. I love coming down here I've really been blessed to be in your midst. It's a privilege to be able to come and to preach regularly and to function as an interim and stuff like that. And I look forward to getting to know uh, many, if not all of you, better and better. My wife and I, Raquel does, as we move forward. But that's a side benefit, okay? That's a side benefit. And so we come together to get to know each other, sure. But first and foremost, when we gather as the church, as one expression of the body of Christ, 
We've come to meet God, right? Now, do you prepare yourself to meet God before Sunday worship time rolls around? That's important. What do we do to prepare ourselves so that when we come together as one expression of the corporate body of Christ, we are prepared individually so that the church corporately will be prepared to meet with the living God? Think on that. Okay. Now here's the second truth that I want to lay out. In the same way that Scripture reveals the great benefit to have fellowship with the living God, that's the revelation. Scripture teaches us also the foundation of this fellowship when it teaches that as Christians something supernatural and really interesting and unique took place when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that something that I'm talking about is that when each of us become Christians, we are united with Christ. We are united with Christ. We come to have union with Christ. And because each individual Christian now is in a state of union with Christ, when a group of Christians gather together, that gathering is also in union with Christ. So what are we talking about when we talk about union with Christ? Well, um, if you keep your finger in 1 John and you go back to Paul's letter to the Romans, um, there's some texts of Scripture that talk about us being in union with Christ. Let me just read some verses to you really quickly. Uh, This is coming from Romans chapter 6, and I want to read down through um, verse 6 or 7, but there's one verse I want to focus on particularly. So Paul is talking to these Roman Christians, and this is what he says, starting in Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? That's a question. And then he answers, may it never be. Greek, meganoito, may it never be. No, you shouldn't continue in sin that grace may increase. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now pay attention to verses three, four, and five. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 5, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That word united is talking about what I'm talking about, union with Christ. Anytime you read through the New Testament, And one of the apostles talks about how those who believe are, quote-unquote, in Christ. It's talking about union with Christ. What is union with Christ? 
What the union of a believer with Christ is, as a very long reference note in one of my study Bibles says, quote, one of the most extraordinary blessings and privileges of every Christian. And then the note goes on. That union is forged by the Holy Spirit at regeneration. When he cuts a sinner off from Adam and grafts him into Christ. You hear what he's saying? Let me read it again. One of the most extraordinary blessings and privileges of every Christian is union with Christ. That union is forged by the Holy Spirit at regeneration. That's what happened when you came to the place where you realized you were a sinner, God was righteous, Christ died for you, and you believed on him. That's a fruit of being regenerated, made alive by the Spirit. That union is forged by the Holy Spirit at regeneration when he cuts a sinner off from Adam and grafts him into Christ. The Spirit then establishes a spiritual union between Christ and the sinner, a union that is unbreakable, irreversible, and eternal. That's what it means to have union with Christ. This work of the Holy Spirit, listen now, reestablishes a covenantal relationship between God and sinful people that once existed between God and Adam before the fall. And as impossible as it is to sever the bond between the human and divine natures of Christ, so the covenantal bond between God and his people established in Christ can never be dissolved. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. And that's why Paul could say what he says in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Let me read that to you really quickly. Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing, 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 that can sever the union between a true believer in Christ and Christ himself. That's why we're secure if we're in Christ. And that's the foundation of this fellowship that John is talking about in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. In the same way, Scripture is the revelation then of God restoring communion with people between himself and people, and as well, our union with Christ is our foundation for fellowship with or communion with God in a real, living, vital relationship. So our third point when it comes to us having fellowship with the Father and with his Son and with the apostles has to do with participation. So, the revelation is that God has brought about the situation where sinful men and women can be restored to him in relationship and in fellowship. Christ has brought about the reality that when we're regenerated, born again, and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come into union with Christ and with God. The end result of that then becomes a participation a participation, a participation in this fellowship. You guys are going to have a Christmas dinner together, right? Did I read the announcement right? It's December 10th. That's awesome. Is that a Friday night? 
Sunday night, that's good. Doesn't matter what night it is. Good. I was coming anyway. <laughs> so guess what's going to happen? You know where I'm going with this. I've got to come and see the 20 ways to make turkey, okay? You mentioned that. Listen, this is what happens. Just like when we had the pie social a few weeks ago. All of us come together and we participate together in fellowship with each other. Make sense? We all know that. It's a given. We don't have to think about it. And in the same way, when we understand that God has made it possible to have a relationship with him and we're now in union with Christ, there's also a participation that flows out of that. And it always happens. It is inevitable. It's a natural outflow. So what is the participation about? Well, the participation is with the apostles in fellowship as well as participation and communion with the Father and his Son. That's what the third verse says. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this is a participatory relationship individually and also as a church. And so here's a question. How does a Christian participate? How does a church participate in this fellowship with the Father and the Son that God worked to bring about and that our union with Christ accomplishes? Well, let me give you a few points. The first question is, how does this fellowship between a Christian and the apostles play itself out? Here's how. We have fellowship with the apostles when we hear and read their testimony, their message, and we believe it. And then we allow ourselves to be shaped by it in life and in relationship. That's how we have fellowship with John and his companions, even though we live in the 21st century. We hear his message, we believe his message, we take the message in, and we allow ourselves to be shaped by it in life and in relationship. When I or we as the church read the accounts written by the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, all the way to the Revelation, when we read all of those things, and we read them by faith, because those 27 books are personal letters to us, when we approach the New Testament like that, we are in fellowship with them as though we lived in the first century. So for me as a pastor, when I read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the pastoral letters, I read those as though Paul wrote it to me because I'm a pastor like Timothy was. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels. They are written to you personally as though you had been there. All of the New Testament books are personal to the people of God. It's like receiving a letter from a friend or a loved one from a far-off place. Uh, one of our sons has had two deployments to the Middle East, and he went through those deployments and came home safely. And every once in a while, we'd receive a note or a letter from him. And we take that letter and we read it, and we consider it. Or maybe it was an email. And we take that letter and we read it and we consider it. 
And even though he was on the other side of the world and we were in Morgan Hill, California, he and I and he and his mother are participating in fellowship together through the letter he wrote to us. And when we send the letter to him, he participates in fellowship with us through the letter we wrote to him. You get the picture? That's what the New Testament is for us. That's how we fellowship with the apostles. Now, this verse also says we have fellowship with the Father. How does our fellowship with the Father flesh out? How does that play out? Well, we have fellowship with the Father when we love him in exchange for his love to us in Christ. He loved us first. We love him back. That's the way it works in practical life. And so keep your finger here in this first chapter and flip over to 1 John chapter 4. And listen to verse 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us, or to us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We love God because he first loved us. And then the way that we fellowship with God is by loving him back. Romans 5.5 actually says that when we're born again, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the spirit that's been given to us. Now that has a particular meaning. It doesn't mean God's love for us is shed abroad in our hearts, no. It means that when we believe and are justified, the Holy Spirit puts a love for the Father in us so that we can love him back. And so through our love for the Father, we fellowship with the Father and the love goes both ways. Now, John Owen, who is a Puritan theologian, wrote these words, and I quote, the chief way by which the saints have communion with the Father is love, free, undeserved, eternal love. And how do we show love back to the Father? By blessing him, by remembering his benefits. Psalm 103, 1 and 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Those are two ways that we love God back, by blessing him, verbally blessing him and remembering his benefits, Psalm 103, one and following, by thanking him. We don't make animal sacrifices anymore. Hebrews tells us that the sacrifice of a believer is the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. What do we have to give thanks to him for? Everything that's good and perfect has come to us from him, the Father of lights, and whom is no variation or shadow of change. Anything that's good in your life is as a result of God's providential working to bless you with good. How much do you thank him for those things? By thanking him, we show love to him. By worshiping him only. First commandment. You should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Is there anything else that has worship in your life 
by worshiping him only, uh, by praying to him regularly. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 talks about that. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, speaking of God the Father. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding or knowledge, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, We worship God. We show him love by praying to him, by seeking him, by crying out to him regularly. Um, That's practical participation in fellowship with the Father. Now, we have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. How do we have fellowship with Christ? He's not here. He's not walking around. We can't walk up and shake his hand or hug him. But we have fellowship with him spiritually. How does that work? Well, we have fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, when we believe him and believe in him and when we obey him. Obviously, when we believe him, that shows that we value him. There's a place in John 6, 29, in fact, where some of Jesus' adversaries said to him, listen, what shall we do to do the works of God? And some of you remember the response. It's in John 6, 29. Jesus responded, this is the work of God, that you believe, that you believe on him whom God has sent. John 6, 29. Now look, if you've never read John 6, read the whole chapter, and you'll come across verse 29 eventually. But it's a marvelous chapter. So how do you do the work of God, my friends? By believing on Christ who God sent. And by believing him, believing his promises and stuff like that. Um, And then we also fellowship with his son uh, by obeying him. And so go back to the Gospel of John again. I want to show you an interesting passage. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. Um, I'm going to read verse 21 and then read verse 24. Um, Verse 21, Jesus speaking says this, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then if you skip down to verse 24, he repeats in some form what he just said. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So he's talking about how our love for him is manifested through our obedience to his commandments, to his instructions, to his word. Now listen, verse 21 is quite revealing. If you look at verse 21 carefully, you'll notice that there's a sequence. Here's the sequence now. Obedience reveals love for Christ. The result is love from the Father and the Son. And then there's further disclosure of Christ. Did you see that in the verse? Let me read it again. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You mean Jesus Christ discloses himself to people in the 21st century today? Yeah. That's the fellowship we're talking about. It's not a mystical fellowship. It's not like the dude that John MacArthur talked about one time 
who told him that when he went into the bathroom to shave, Jesus came into the bathroom and stood next to him and watched him shave. That's not what we're talking about. And Dr. Mark Arthur, after the guy says, you don't believe me, do you? said, it's not important whether I believe you or not, but my question is, if Jesus comes and stands by you while you're shaving, do you keep on shaving? Do you understand his point? If the true risen Jesus Christ appeared right here today, none of us would have any position except prostration before him. But we're not talking about some mystical experience. But we're talking about spiritual fellowship with God the Son. And the Son revealing himself to us more and more. So that we can actually walk in what Peter closes his second letter with. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we do that as we take seriously the revelation of the apostles written in the 27 books of the New Testament as well as the 39 books of the Old Testament and we read them and we meditate on them and we pray over them and we learn about Jesus and we talk to him in prayer and we learn to hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to us through the Word. Right? And that's where we fellowship with the Son. And so that's 1 John Chapter 1, verse 3. And the greatest benefit then of being a Christian, not that the other benefits that I mentioned aren't great, they are, but the greatest benefit of being a Christian is that we have true fellowship and communion with Christ's apostles. And we also have true fellowship and communion with God the Father and Son. The scripture as as a whole is the revelation of how God desires this. Union with Christ is its foundation. And then John invites us to participation with God and Christ in fellowship. And those who are Christ participate in this fellowship. How's your participation? Now let me say one other thing and then I'm going to close. If there's no participation, that means there's no connection. Some of you may be sitting here and say, I have no participation like you're talking about. I don't fellowship with the apostles' writings. I don't bless the Lord and his benefits and pray and give him thanks and worship him. I don't obey Jesus. What you need to know is, If there's no participation, there's no connection. And what you need is connection to God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Spirit. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't wait. He beckons you now. If you want to know more information about that, talk to Michael or talk to Darren. Talk to Goliath. Talk to someone else you know who is a Christian. Come talk to me. We'll be happy to talk to you about the gospel and how with the difference it can make in your life. Let's pray. And then we're going to shift our attention to the elements of the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can be together today and open your word and read some from it. We thank you that for all of us who are Christians, your word is spiritual food that builds us up in our most holy faith making us a little bit more like Jesus so that we can represent him well.
And we just ask you, Father, to help us grasp the revelation. Live our life off the foundation of union with Christ. And then have full participation in Christ. Because we belong to you. May that be true of this church and all of us as individual Christians. For those who might not know you, I pray that you would give grace. That they would purpose to seek Jesus. To learn as much as they can about him and that you would bring them to the place where they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.